the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. Well, I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline on this very auspicious day, if I might say so myself, where God has granted us one more Monday, a Monday we have never seen, by the way, with such great weather. Hopefully your day was a day of peace and and tranquility and maybe even rest that it was for me. And here we are in the evening, five o'clock. It happens to be 5.05 P.M. to be exact on uh, July 22nd, 2019. If you didn't know, now you know. (laughs) Glad to have you in the house with us on this Monday edition of Lifeline. Don't know my voice. It's Jesse Gistan, who happens to fill this space, the Attila DeHun for Craig Roberts on Mondays. Kind of get things warmed up for the um, items and activities of the week from Tuesday through Friday. Generally, we have topics and uh, guests and uh, book reports and different political, social, psychological, spiritual issues that Craig addresses. And um, I get the privilege of warming up the seat for that activity for a couple hours on uh, Mondays with many of you. Uh, thankful for our uh, continued and longstanding listening audience. If you're a new listener, we'd be glad to um, bring you on in, welcome you on in as part of the family. If you, uh, if you've been listening for the first time, we are kind of an open forum. Uh, I bring topics to the floor, try to stimulate our thoughts and, and get us, uh, grounded in, uh, in a biblical worldview and, and maybe even answer questions that people might have around what's going on in our world today on a personal level. And then on a larger public level as well. I love to do that. Um, that being said, we do have a number here that you can reach me at if you have a question, a Bible question, a, a world question, a political, social question. I am a pastor of a local church. Uh, again, if you don't know, I happen to pastor Grace Bible Church in Hayward, California. We have been in existence for some 23 years at that location for about nine years now and um, going strong, very uh, a very eclectic group of believers uh, at Grace Bible Church, a good-sized church. We would call it a medium-sized church of 600-plus people who um, who attend Grace and uh, have attended for many years. Multi-ethnic, um, just a lot of folks coming from different places. Um, our church is a, a, a what we would call a, a very solid biblical church of expository preaching as the central uh, essence of who we are and what we do. Um, and we love uh, to evangelize. We love to um, reach out and do different uh, ministries by which we can build a bridge to share the gospel of the glory of God in Christ with our neighbors and our friends abroad. I was just with our children's church ministry this Saturday. 
You know, it's funny, having been a pastor for a long time and thinking through how pastors think and how individuals think about how church should be run and how church should be done. You hear all sorts of ideas that are sometimes just novel, uh, you know, new ideas that don't really have any kind of well-tested, proven historicity behind them. And the ideas can be good. Sometimes they're just misled, you know, one would say just overly narrow simply because of bad experiences in churches uh, in the past. And one would want to kind of reduce the church down to some on some occasions to a Bible study or uh, a, a simple worship service where everybody's there, men, women and children. And, you know, long ago when we first started Grace. Um, it must have been about 30 people. This is around 1996 or 7 or so, something in that ballpark. And uh, we'd have about 30, 35 people, maybe 40 people with some visitors in our congregation, our fellowship hall in San Leandro, if you guys remember, going back way back to the Odd Fellows. And um, uh, we were kind of a family church, so all the kids are right there. Grown-ups are right there. Kids are right there. This this will help some of you pastors if you're listening and talking about how should we go about an ecclesiastical structure, an ecclesiology that would actually be wise and prudent and honorable both to God and our auditors. Well, long ago, you know, you know, church folk fight about a lot of things. You guys know that we fight about everything between the music and the color of the pews and and everything in between. Love to fight. Church folk really do think that, you know, they sit at God's elbow and get his instructions as to what should be done, particularly like when Moses went up into the mount and he was told by God. Now, Moses. When you build the tabernacle, build it this way and don't deviate one bit. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is not the way that God structured the approach of the New Testament. The distinctions between the old church and the new church, the Old Testament church, that's what it was. An Old Testament church, a congregation, an ecclesia called out of Egypt and a New Testament church are radically different. In the Old Testament, you had a central place of worship called the temple. Then you had local synagogues throughout the cities of Israel, the 12 tribes, as they occupied uh, Canaan or Palestine. And people would go to the local synagogue. And there was a structure and form in that local synagogue that basically followed the pattern of men separated from women. And and then you had the minister, that's what he was called, uh, the huperetes, uh, who would read the scriptures. And then you would have someone who would expound the scriptures possibly, and they would sing hymns, etc. Um and, and and they wouldn't break pattern as a rule as to how that was done. Everything was done the same way all the way out through Israel. Uh, they did have liberal theologians and conservative theologians and folks in between and then weirdos and sectarians and cultics. There's no doubt about that. By the time we get to the days of Christ, you've got cult leaders whose names was Jesus as well, Jesus or uh, Judah, Judah. Uh, definitely you had all kinds of folks who were saying the Lord called me to be, you know, a leader. And so people followed them to their own destruction because they weren't called. And that's such a big deal. But one of the things I remember as a young pastor working through was why does a small church um, often not want to engage in some of the large church models and ministries when they look and see that a larger church would be 
engaging in practices that would be different than a smaller church. And when you're a small church uh, congregant, and if all you've ever known in your your life as a believer are small church activities. When I say a small church, I'm talking anything 100 and under. Uh, and, and, and what that would mean is that there would not be a necessity for uh, significant uh, divisions of groups for particular ministry activities in a small church. And so often the small church would look upon the big church and say a lot of bad things about the big church. And I, I discovered that that really fundamentally simply meant that the small church minded pastor and nothing wrong with him as long as he is willing to stay in that small construct of a small church uh, format, and he doesn't have to face the larger church format challenges. But for larger churches, I have discovered, now there are a bunch of larger churches, as you would know, that are just engaged in all kinds of vanities that have nothing to do with the edification of the people of God at the level of knowing God and knowing God in his words. And I know that the train has often run off the tracks in your larger churches with all kinds of ministry activities that are basically frivolous and uh and basically human in their uh in their construct just a, a what we would call a horizontal complex a horizontal ministry just just getting caught up in activities and events simply because of a social need and not really necessarily a deep and profound spiritual component to it by which it can serve to edify the church centrally well, as you grow, and that's what happened to us at Grace Bible Church in Hayward, we began to grow after about 10 years of really, really getting grounded and rooted in our identity, just like any organic body that's actually alive will do. Any local church that's actually alive, what I mean by that is that you are really a local church that has been established by God. You actually have the Spirit of God. You actually have... A, uh, a medium by which you know the will of God, which is the word of God, and you're paying attention to that. The living church is a church that is at large, not in total, but at large, a company of men and women who are actually truly born again. And they are committed to biblical truth beyond their own egos and beyond their own constructs of how church should be done. Now, w- when I state that, you guys, I'm, I'm saying a lot. I'm saying a lot when I say that we have to get beyond our own egos and our own constructs when it comes to doing God's will in a way that pleases him and honors him at different stages and levels of growth in the congregation. It's very much like a family. You you don't deal with your kids at at two the same way you will deal with them at four. You don't deal with your children at six the same way you will deal with them at 13. You do not deal with your children at 25 the same way you deal with your children at 17. And if you're dealing with your children at 40 the same way you dealt with them at 21, you've got a huge problem and a very narrow prism of understanding uh, developmental processes and changes in relationship in order to have a healthy and vital relationship with that grown adult person. Well, it's the same thing in a local church. As a church grows, you come to recognize different needs for that growing adolescent, that growing teenager, that growing young adult. I'm using that as a metaphor for the congregation. I'm just thinking here recently, I was listening to the message, a message by a very good uh, professor, and he was preaching at his own local church. 
and uh, I think he is doing ministry somewhere in Nevada, somewhere. And I'm listening because I can't see the congregation and don't need to, but I'm hearing babies in the background. <laughs> and I remember the days when we were a small congregation and you could just hear the babies in the background. And ladies and gentlemen and, and elders and deacons, please hear me now. Your pastor does all he can to ignore the babies. But it's driving him crazy. <laughs> He's doing all he can to phase them out. I remember laboring because I've got eight kids, as you guys know, the world knows it now. And, uh, and, and, and when my kids were younger, they were part of the group of smaller kids. And uh, uh, fortunately, God had given me and my wife a lot of grace to train our kids in a way to be able to sit in worship service. That's not so much so today, today but they could sit pretty well and sit under the word. And, and they might squabble here or there. And sometimes they need to be walked out and walked around. And there's nothing wrong with that. You should do that. A church should not be a prison to the kids. It should be an educational institution. It should be a learning event. It should be a time of focused uh, attention, but not a prison. So be very careful to understand you will not have an endorsement in the word of God to torture your kids by letting them sit there on the pew and almost pee on themselves. Uh, They will grow up and despise church if you do that. Get them up, walk them away. Uh, somebody take them outside and walk around and then bring them back on in after they burnt off a little energy. Understand that God knows human beings, please. <laughs> in any event, my, my man was preaching really good. I'm enjoying him. But you could hear the children in the background crying and making noises. And it's just going on. And I was thinking, man, it's been a long time since I heard uh, babies, you know, making noise in the background of, of my preaching. Or my teaching. Um, even on Friday night, we'll have a smaller group of 60 to 80 or 100 people who come out. And uh, and we still don't hear babies. Not as a rule. Now, do you know why? Because as we grew in our numbers, we became keenly aware of the need for proficiency in the context of worship. That grown people need to have as much uh, freedom from distraction as possible to both give unto God and receive from God in the context of worship. That means that children that are inclined to make noise, that also means that children that are used to it because moms and dads don't know how to effectively train their children to be quiet for any lengthy period of time, should be in another quarter of the room, another space of the room, uh, learning how to know God in the context of being a two-year-old or nine-month-old or three-year-old. That being said, nursery school has always been a part of any wise church. And as the church got larger, that being said, three to five year olds have been a part of any wise church when you have begun to develop a number of families where three to five year olds are um, becoming a significant part of the congregation. And I remember hearing men who would argue about you shouldn't have a children's church. They shouldn't be separate. They They all should be together. Are you kidding me? 
Then where are the gifts in the church being employed? Where are the budding uh, 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 teachers, both male and female, who um, who have the gift of dealing with children and ministering to children and getting down on children's level and taking the word of God and, 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 and showing the children who Jesus is through phonics, mnemonics, uh, illustrations and pictures through the word of God? Where are those gifts going to be employed if not? in some context exclusive to the need of the children. And how are you going to guarantee training your children from three to five to six to nine to nine to 12, as are the categories in our church, three to five, six to nine, nine to 12, so that when they are given to be in the congregation, um, they they know the word of God. They know worship. They know how to sing songs and hymns and, and praises. They know how to worship. That's what you do with them. You, and, and quite frankly, body of Christ, mature men and women, budding uh, saints, listen carefully to this. Your uh, parents who have been really laboring to maintain their children all week long really could use a break during worship by the eclectic use of the gifts in the church. Every member supplying that which is lacking uh, by the spirit of God for the whole of the body in its edification uh, based upon the love of God in Christ, Ephesians chapter 4, 14, 15 and 16. And so uh, what I'm getting at is that um, it's really important for us to know that these categories play a role in the maturity and the witness in the church. Here's another good reason why you really do want to have a minimally, uh, uh, a minimally disturbed congregational setting for the unbeliever that comes in who has a hard time hearing the word of God anyway. Why would we want him to be distracted by some parent who is oblivious to the decibel to which his kids are emitting noises in the congregation? Why would we want that man disturbed, that woman disturbed, that family disturbed? They should be able to hear the word of God unfettered by our children's peculiarities. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, so that's a little note if you are a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a small group of congregational folks that are thinking through how should we how should we structure our local church ecclesiastically in terms of um how to best benefit uh the people coming in and how to best honor God. I'll tell you, it was a great, great blessing. And even now, every now and then when I'm preaching somewhere and I'm in one one of those kind of family settings, I, I go, Whoo, this is tough. I've been I've been free from this for a long time. Haven't haven't had to really deal with interruptions like this in years. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the wisdom to understand what larger churches that have had to learn how to do these things have done to make it easier for people to focus on you and your word in the context of worship. Well, the number is one triple eight three six seven five three two nine one triple eight. Three six seven five three two nine. The phone lines are open. All the phone lines are open. I'm here to take your questions, uh, help you with your issues, address spiritual problems, theological problems, personal problems, and just enjoy you for the next hour and 30 minutes here on the Monday edition of Lifeline. All the lines are open. Give me a call. One triple eight three six seven. 
I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. We're back at the time, 528. Again, our lines are open if you want to have a conversation. 1-888-367-5329. If you want to chat on, uh, on anything, political issues, not anything, but relevant things, political, social, theological issues, you want to call, give me a call. one 367 Yours truly, Jesse Gistan, pastor of Grace Bible Church in Hayward. Uh, enjoying our Monday freedom to be able to talk and to dialogue and to engage in discussions. Sometimes they can be a little challenging. Uh, battles can incur. If you have some issues with something I've said in the past, you want to uh, walk it through, we can talk it through. one 367 Don't mind doing that as well. That's part of our freedom here in America to be able to disagree, to talk about it. To reason, if you will, and find out whether or not the the grounds and premise upon our disagreements are healthy disagreements or not. It gives us an opportunity to determine whether or not we are men of wisdom, men of discretion, men of integrity, men and women uh, of uh, character. Uh, Can we disagree and do it in a way that adorns the gospel and adorns the spirit of the living God? Uh, the church must learn how to do a better job at that, I, I, I must say. Uh, removing all of the kind of political fervor that has a tendency to want to obscure uh, the essential and relevant topics that really do need to be talked about and uh, be able to just in a very winsome uh, and a very uh, appropriate fashion with some decorum and rules uh, talk about topics that can be challenging and difficult in our lives. I do know there are a lot of you out there that are struggling with not only ecclesiological issues that I stated before the call, you know, patterns and modes of worship in the church, but theological issues, doctrinal issues that are really creeping in. I was um, making mention uh, to a number of my young men that I happen to be mentoring about some of the critical, critical things that they need to make sure that they don't get distracted from as they work towards their uh, theological acumen, their, their, their studies in the word of God, whether they are doing it academically or on a personal level. What I let them know is that if we think about how church history has played out, the men who have done the most uh, edifying work for the body of Christ, the people of God, have been men who have dealt with frontline issues, not peripheral issues, not secondary issues, frontline issues. And of course, uh, throughout church history, if you know the patristic years that uh, began at the end of the apostolic era, somewhere around 100 AD, shortly thereafter, and then from the days of the Apostle John forward until we got up to the era of the creeds, credo debates, these would be called the ecumenical uh, uh, councils, uh, about 11 to boot that led us throughout about four or 500 years uh, where we were dealing with salient doctrinal um, uh, formulations to define and articulate uh, as the body of Christ what we believe and understand to be true and right and you and, and, and held to um, at the um, 
at the uh, expense of or to the uh, level of uh, if we disagree with these things, they are either heterodoxical or just out and out heresy. Uh, the church engaged in debate, it engaged in discussion, it engaged in exploration and processes of councils and senates. And as I said, uh, periods of time where they addressed uh, issues such as the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the doctrine of the Trinity and the the doctrine of of justification and the doctrines of 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 the cross work of Christ, different doctrinal issues, uh, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Spirit of God, which is a doctrine that we are working on right now in our congregation for the next seven weeks the person and work of the Spirit of God. Historically, the church has had to deal with that because, well, uh, unsound reasoning, unsound thinking, ambitious men and women wanting to have a place in history uh, coming in, creeping in with, with errors and false doctrine that would uh, take men and, wife, uh, men and women away from the reality of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Well, we actually have a grand formulation of biblical truth in in what we would call a systematic form. Everything from paterology, the study of God the Father, all the way to eschatology, the study of end times and the return of Christ, and several critically important doctrinal categories in between, from soteriology to pneumatology and and so forth. Uh, We have all those categories that are there. Uh, and men have done a great job to lay a foundation on them, and we can take and learn from our our forefathers what they have discovered in the Word of God, because the Word of God hasn't changed in 2,000 years, hasn't changed in 3,500 years. Um, we can embellish upon what they said. We can enhance what they said. We can identify some things that could have been done better, and uh, we can move forward because we're not bound to a kind of traditionalism as an ironclad grounds for determining heresy or heterodoxy or orthodoxy. We look at them and we listen to our forefathers and we try to understand where we are in light of where they were and then rediscover that frequently we are revisiting the same kinds of uh, heresies that they had to deal with in their day. Albeit, I'm going to say this, and I do have one line open, one 367 if I had to say, and I was talking to a young man uh, yesterday, if I had to say what would be some of the things that uh, men and women should begin to study today um, after getting a handle on what the true gospel is, that's first and foremost, getting a proper understanding of who God is, who Christ is, and who the Spirit of God is in their triunity of persons and singularity of divine being as they have revealed themselves in the Scriptures in terms of our salvation, what salvation really is, the real condition of men apart from God, their absolute and total inability to save themselves on any grounds whatsoever, the absolute and essential necessity of God actually quickening them, saving them, coming and getting them and raising from them from the dead through the preaching of the gospel. And then that sanctifying work that brings them into a process of conformity and growth in Christ so that they are serviceable. We kind of put it in three categories. A man needs to be saved. A man needs to be sanctified. And then a man needs to serve. 
Now, that's the reason why God saves us in order to demonstrate his mercy and grace or what we would call to the praise of the glory of his grace. As the apostle puts it in Ephesians one uh, verse seven and, and again uh, around verse 11 or 12 to the praise of the glory of his grace as he made us fit to be family members uh, of God in Christ through his grace. But that's in order that we might serve the true and the living God and wait for his son, Jesus Christ, from heaven. That requires being saved. That requires being sanctified. And that requires moving out in service. And you don't move out in service until you are clearly sanctified in your mind and your understanding as to who you are in Christ, who Christ is, what the gospel is, and what gifts God has given you in order that you might actually prosper in your service towards God. Never run. Before being sent, this is a problem in our present day church where it is really given to numbers and, and size and, and, and trying to win people uh, without uh, even making sure that the people that are being used to win them are truly one themselves. That becomes a tragedy. But if I were to say that there was an area that we need to be very clear on, ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to help our present generation, that would be biblical anthropology. Biblical anthropology, that if we're going to be helpful to this present millennial Gen X culture, we have to be deeply committed to a biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, because at present, the whole idea of who we are is under deconstruction by this present uh, post-modern silly uh, culture that we live in that denies everything that has been historically given to us and used by God in the lives of men and women to maintain a coherent understanding of the binary distinction between a man and a woman and their roles, by the way, their roles, their roles. Where the church is collapsing and being able to adhere to, understand, embrace, and defend biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, the church will be of no use to a society who doesn't even know who it is. Your children are being challenged every day as to their identity. And they're being told that their identity is absolutely a matter of self-opinion. That they determine and they define who they are. And therefore, what their purpose and role is in this world. If this is not the height, height of treason against God, I don't know what is. So biblical anthropology is critical because that's where the diabolical work of our adversary is entering into our colleges, universities, seminaries. And again, blinding and obscuring men and women who are naively thinking that they can go into ministry through uh, seminaries and, and universities without being completely subverted by a dialectical process that's stripping them of any kind of commitment to the biblical uh, narrative as to God making them male and female in the image of God creating them with a purpose, by the way. If you don't become deeply enriched in the knowledge of who God is and how man has been created by God and for the purpose for which he has been created, you're not going to help your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids. It's all going to be a wash because they're going to re realize that all of your peripheral arguments about all the other peripheral things that go on in the world that you might throw a Bible verse at is completely irrelevant to their germane, to the salient and germane question that their soul is raising. Who am I?
What am I here for? What is my purpose and what is my destiny? Biblical anthropology is absolutely critical. And adjacent to it, biblical marriage, where the church is collapsing around and God in the beginning created the male and female and the twain became one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man break asunder. That whole framework for the health of the family and the children and the society, that whole thing is in question, too. If we don't have a healthy, sound, rich, uh, committed, biblical uh, understanding of marriage, forget it. It's all a wash. You can play church with all of this morphed, twisted, distorted expression of humanity by our postmodern, liberal, extremely, extremely anti-biblical culture, even in the name of Jesus. You can play church with that, but you'll never, ever see true conversion because when God really saves us, he saves us into a process of restoration to bring us back into the full purposes and, and, and prophetic ob, uh, objectives of God in terms of the Imago Day. That is the image of Jesus Christ. All right, I got one line open. I've been kind of just ranting. Uh, one line open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. When I come back, I'll get you, Nelson, Melody, and Ellen. One line open. And, and, and like I'm saying, if you're gonna if you're gonna be helpful to the average man and woman on the street, because most men and women are walking in a dizzying just haze of I don't know. I, I don't know what to believe anymore. Well, Christian, if you don't know what to believe anymore right along with them, you are a candle without a light. You are a mute prophet. A dumb dog not knowing how to speak. You are salt that has lost its savior, savor, and you are just, we're useless if we don't understand the real frontline battle, battles and are prepared to and spirit aided to engage in them. So God help us to understand what the frontline battles are, if not for anyone else, our own family. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. We are back. The time is 549 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. All the lines are full. Let's see if we can clear them so you can call as well. Let me go to line number two and talk with Melody and and, uh, Newman. Melody, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you? I'm great. What's your question, comment, or observation? Okay. Um, well, I do have a question, but first of all, I want to tell you thank you for the sermon yesterday. I had the live stream, but I did hear. And what I got out of the um, the, the sermon yesterday that I applied to myself is about um, where you you had mentioned about the, um, the running that race and mm-hmm. obtaining the, the promises. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I wrote down was to run it with diligence mm-hmm. and because it's a long distance race mm-hmm. and that I must run it with endurance and patience. That's right. And um, to, to not mix grace with works, mm-hmm. to don't get it confused, but to condition myself, mm-hmm. you know, in training, mm-hmm. um, which was really good. I Totally enjoyed the sermon yesterday, but then my question also is, um, I was reading in Isaiah, mm-hmm. I was at the 45th chapter, and it was the third verse, and mm-hmm. I kind of got stuck there where it was saying, I will give thee the treasures of darkness 
and the hidden riches of secret places. So my question is, what is the treasures of darkness? Right. Um, well, you know, there's a bunch of questions to be actually asked around Isaiah 45 because it's a dual prophecy. Isaiah 45, 1 opens up this way, uh, Melody, thus saith the Lord, thus saith Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden uh, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make thee make the crooked places straight. I will break piece in pieces the gates of brass, and I will cut asunder the bars of iron. And then he speaks in verse 3, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places thus uh, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. So contextually, this is a prophecy that was uh, declared um, by Isaiah some um, couple of hundred years before it would be fulfilled in Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, one of the Persian kings after Darius in Daniel chapter six, where Darius comes on the scene after Nebuchadnezzar. First, we have Babylon, who took Israel into captivity. Captivity, then Medo-Persia that took uh, Israel into captivity, uh, and the Medo-Persian kings, one of them, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, were grandsons um, of, uh, of Cyrus. Cyrus here would have been uh, either the father or uh, son of Darius, or they would have been co-regent rulers uh, during the time in which Daniel lived. And Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9 about the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of its walls. So Cyrus began the process of Israel coming back uh, from Babylon into Palestine. This is in the days of Nehemiah. If you recall, Nehemiah is building the walls at a time when a lot of enemies want to destroy that wall and keep Israel from being uh, a protected, fortified city. It was the days in which uh, Ezra also, before Nehemiah, had called Israel to reformation and repentance. And of course, it was the days in which, remember Sister Esther, who married uh, Xerxes, prayed for Israel because the enemies wanted to destroy Israel. It was in the days of those Persian kings that God had commanded that his people come back and that the Gentile rulers, Cyrus being one of them, would be moved in his heart to actually support the building process. And this is what you would read explicitly in the book of Ezra, where the king would say, and the God of heaven moved me to want to send his people back, support them in the process of rebuilding. Now, when it uses the term, uh, verse three, I will go before thee and make uh, make uh, the crooked places straight and I will break in pieces are actually yeah, verse three and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I am the Lord which call thee by name and the God of Israel. I would say that that language is speaking to the ability for Cyrus to be able to recover all of the Jewish artifacts, all of the temple artifacts, everything that the temple 
uh, represented in terms of the gold and the silver and the um, the whole structure that Nebuchadnezzar basically had burned down to the ground and had taken all of the goods that his son, if you remember, Belteshazzar had a party and he took a lot of the cups and uh, platters of the temple and used it in his drunken party. And that's when God wrote with his finger on the wall about his judgment. Do you remember that that account? Yeah. Where, uh-huh. where Nebuchadnezzar's son was condemned for his arrogance in taking the holy things of God and uh, and using them for his drunken his party. So the text here says the secret treasures. Those secret treasures would would be in the historical context the 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 temple riches, the temple wealth, the temple articles, the temple goods that God really had designated as being holy and should be touched by no one. But the larger significance of these hidden treasures, because this really is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate one that sets captives free and opens up the doors and makes straight the paths. All this language about Cyrus is ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the treasures, the secret treasures would be the treasures of the gospel are the riches that are ours in Christ. That's the terminology that Paul used all throughout the New Testament epistle. And I'll just give you one verse is in the book of Colossians that would basically help us uh, leap past the historical account of the treasures, uh, uh, hidden treasures that that Cyrus was able to acquire in terms of the the goods in, in Palestine and the temple goods. But the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2. He uses this term in verses 1 and 2, and then you'll see it also in verse 3. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them in Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches— a full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mysteries of God and of the Father and of Christ. Now, what Paul is doing is actually now talking about the mysteries of God. That's the same term secret in Isaiah 45, 3, the secret treasures, the hidden treasures. And here's what he says in verse 3. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He was saying that God is really hid in Jesus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when Cyrus is used in Isaiah 45 melody as the political king to liberate Israel from Babylonian captivity, he's pointing to our ultimate anointed one, Jesus, who possesses all of the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge by which men and women are taken out of spiritual captivity, out of spiritual bondage, out of spiritual poverty and brought into the riches of the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That is the way the trajectory of Isaiah 45 would go if you were to keep keep reading it. So it's a double prophecy of national Israel coming back, being restored, the temple being rebuilt, but it's ultimately what Christ did, who is God's ultimate anointed one, that's what the word anointed means, Messiah. He's the ultimate Messiah who ultimately possesses the treasures of wisdom and knowledge by which you and I are saved. I hope that helps a little bit. That helps a lot. Thank you so much. Well, one more thing, because I've been thinking about you and Willie for the last week or so. I just <laughs> need to know while you're on the phone, how my brother doing? 
he's hanging in there. His stomach still hurts, and we're going to try to make it to prayer tomorrow night, but we'll see how he's feeling. He's, All right. Well, you can't get on the bike or anything. You just got to take it easy for now. Well, tell him his pastor is praying for him every day for an answer to uh, his affliction. Because, you know, I'm used to him smiling, and I'm not used to this. Okay. So. I know. Huh? <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Thank right. you. God bless you. too. All right. I'm going uh, to take one more phone call before the break. I'll go to Nelson on line one in San Mateo. Nelson, are you there? Nelson on line one. Hi, how, how are you doing? I'm good. What's going on, man? I'll be real quick. Um, um, I made it to your service, and my brother never went to me with church before. He went to two church services. We went to a, a, a church in um, San Jose. Um, he's 70 years old. Wow. He, he's never been to church with me before. Um, and um, he went. He went to two church services, and um, one guy was a graduate of the Master's College, he, so he was a basically a Reformed Baptist in theology. Sure. And um, and, he, and, he's, and he preached on Romans nine about election and everything. But um, and you know your your sermon was an hour and a half yesterday. I downloaded it on my phone. That was one of the best sermons, maybe the best sermon I ever heard. I mean, obtaining promises to call. In discipleship of obtaining them, yeah. you really um, you you spelled so many things out. It was just good for equipping the saints. And I, like I told you, I hadn't been going to church because I, I get disillusioned. You know, I I went to a church that was on sixty minutes for mm-hmm. their abuse. Yeah, it, back in the eighties, and and so I left that ministry. And I've always been funny towards church since then. Sure, and. Um, but that that was just good to hear that message is so clear. You know, you know what's funny, Nelson. I, I went out. To, I'm gonna be talking about this when I get off the line with you about hospitality because we were out with a young couple last night, and while we're going uh, to to um, to to dinner with them, my wife said, "You know, Nelson came to church." I said, "What?" She said, "Yeah, Nelson came to church." <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. She said, no, him and his brother came to church and his brother hadn't been to church in years. Apparently you met my wife. Did you know that was my wife? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I knew. Because I haven't been to your church on offer since 2010. But I told her that you, you kind of misunderstood what I was saying last time about Nike. Like they, they, Oh, she told were, me. She corrected me. Right, right, right. Yeah, because they were. it was a Kaepernick thing that they were doing that in church, not because of that. But um um anyways that, that was that was so good and it just really revitalized my heart with both sermons that I'm I'm really gonna make an effort to go to church. It's like every church you don't feel comfortable with because the Bay Area they cater a lot of churches to um Yeah felt what, felt needs. Yeah. They do. But particularly in the peninsula. In the peninsula You're right about that. Um, Right. You know, you're right about and, that. And I do understand that. I was talking a little bit about that in my opening narrative. Uh, you're right about that. I, You know, it's a very tricky issue. The other thing is I do understand people's peculiarities. I really do. Uh, and so I'm not really like super uptight. I, you know, you really do have to have a, a, a somewhat of a comfortable fit. But there is an underlying obedience that has to be there for all of us in terms of worship. It's just, you know, the king doesn't summon us to worship and say, well, Lord, I'll go up. If I want to, 
we do have to go, and it is edifying when you go. I'm glad you came. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, I preach, and I don't play. So I don't, you know, this idea of 45 minutes or an hour. It might be an hour. It might be an hour 10. It might be an hour 20. Uh, but I, I'm not going to be filibustering. I'm going to be getting at the word of God because God has a message for my people. And uh, we don't, we don't, we don't submit to these kind of constraints of time that that actually can quench the spirit. Uh, I've seen that happen, too, where really good men have thought, you know, if they preach more than 40 minutes, people are going to leave. Well, let people leave if they can't handle 40 minutes of the word of God. But they will have to answer to Jesus about how they can sit in front of that TV for three hours or on the Internet for five hours as to whether or not they can sit under the word of God. Now, I wouldn't want to sit under the word either, Nelson, if uh, if all they were doing was entertaining filibuster and not really expounding the scriptures. And if I didn't sense that God was being exalted and I was being challenged, I wouldn't want to be there. But that's how we've always done it. And, uh, you know, I hope God always graces the people that come to grace to understand that we only have one worship service on Sunday. We don't do two. We do have a Sunday school, but we don't have two worship services per se. Uh, And so when you come to church on Sunday, uh, our thing is, it's a Sabbath. It's a day of rest. We're not looking at our watches to see how quick we can get out and go catch the football game. To me, that's anathema. If if the spirit of God is in our fellowship, if if we are if we are focused on him through his word and there is the presence of his anointing calling us to hear and to yield our hearts to him. We should want that to last as long as God wants it. And then after that, we go home. But that's, you know, that's me. I'm kind of from the old school like that. But, man, I was honored to find out from my wife that you came. So thanks for the call. And, you know, the doors open, bro. I got to take a break. Three lines are open. one 367 5329 I'm just, I'm burning up all kind of time. We're going to pay some bills. And then when I come back, I'll take up uh, your call. So give me a call. one 367 5329 I'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com